0: Get it. Okay. Okay, are we ready to get started? I just wanted to ring the bell. Tinker bell. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Yesterday we talked about rejoicing in hope. And today we continue our focus on our theme of persevering and we're going to look at the next command in Romans 12:12 12, 12, be patient in affliction. But first I think we should remember how this chapter begins. So I'd like to read chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Let's pray. In a minute. Okay. Yes, we're going to pray now. All right. God, we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. This is our worship. We don't want to conform to the pattern of this world, but we ask that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds and the power of your Holy Spirit. May we follow your will wholeheartedly as we live for you. Amen. It's in this daily offering that we live out our calling. Believers in Jesus are not living in conformity with the world, and so we're going to face challenges. We're going the opposite direction of how most people think and how most people live. We face opposition. We combat sin. We're in a spiritual battle. For believers in Jesus, affliction is guaranteed. Peter tells us not to be surprised at trial in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Affliction is normal. Dislike of us and our message is to be expected. In John's first epistle, chapter 3, verse 13, he wrote, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So knowing that affliction is a part of our lives, it's a part of our calling, how can we be patient in affliction? And I'd like to share an illustration of patients in physical illness that may help us in our spiritual lives and ministry. So I was in the Philadelphia airport <laughs> on my way back to Spain. I was jauntily walking through the airport. I was in a Fitbit challenge, I'm sure. And I decided not to take the tram. I would walk. And just breezing my way through the airport, the floor was nice and smooth. It was not wet. There was no crack. There was no step. There was no reason in the world for me to fall. Except for these shoes that I had on, they were comfy shoes. But the tip of them had like a—I um, don't know if it was rubber or something—but every now and again it would just stick on something smooth. And so this time it really did um, stick. But my body didn't get the message <coughs> that we were stopping. <laughs> and so struggling to regain my balance, I—I I failed and fell onto the hard floor shaken but with the help of passers-by I mean I lost a shoe we went like we're talking flying and somebody helped me with my shoe and they helped me get up and you know there's that gasp that happens when somebody falls in the airport yeah there was like a might have been mine but I think there were other people who gasped And and I stood up and everybody says are you okay are you okay and I'm like oh yeah I'm fine I'm just gonna like go over here and sit down in this chair so I kind of limped over to this chair, and I, and I sat down, and I thought, I'm just going to sit here and, and recover. The sitting part was easy. The recovery part was not going so well. And so I thought, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm on my own. My knee is hurting. My arm is hurting. And you know when something like that happens, it's unexpected. You know, your heart's kind of racing, and there's just this, I can't believe that just happened. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, okay, what I need to do is I need to get to my departure gate. So I'm looking around, and right, I mean, it's not too far. There's one of those information desks. And so I hobbled over there, and I explained that I fell, and my leg was hurting. Could they help me? And they got me that one of those carts, and so the person wheeled me to my departure gate. It was like two hours till departure, and I'm sitting there. I tend to be a frugal person. And our insurance is really good when we're overseas and not quite so good when we're in the U.S. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I just have to get back, and then I can see a doctor there, and it won't cost as much money. Um, But, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know, it really hurts. A bag of ice would help. I'm going to go get a bag. Oh. I saw this lady. I have no clue who she is. I said, excuse me. I said, I fell would you be willing to go ask this restaurant for a bag of ice? So she did that. She brings me the ice, and I have the, ni- the ice on my knee. And there's a man sitting next to me, and he goes, It looks like you're in pain. Use my seat case to put your foot up. Mm-hmm. And I said, Could you go get me a bottle of water? I mean, people <laughs> were so nice that I tried to pay him for it. he goes, No, you just drink the water. <laughs> and I was just thinking, All I have to do is get on that plane. Well, I'm texting with my husband. And I'm texting with my daughter, who's an athletic trainer, and they're both saying, Mom, well, Don didn't say Mom, but my daughter said, Mom, you don't need to get on the plane when you don't know what your injury is. You really should get it taken care of here before you get on the plane. I mean, it was an eight-hour flight, and I had a 12-hour layover in Madrid. Yeah. So this man who got me the water, he went and got the... Airline representative, he talked with somebody, and somebody came uh, to sit with me, and we were talking about my options. They had a medical team come, and mm-hmm. they said, we can take you by ambulance, and I just see money. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. I think what I'll do is um, my daughter will come pick me up because she didn't live too far from Philly, and she'll take me to an urgent care, and, and I'll get that taken care of. Uh, the, the customer care representative was really nice. She changed my ticket so I could leave the next day. And she arranged for this cart to drive me to where my daughter would pick me up. And I just felt this this was really good. So the driver of the cart picked me up, drove me, and stopped in front of this really long hallway. And she said, so what you need to do is get out and you walk down that hallway and then there's an escalator and you go down the escalator and that's where your daughter you can wait for your daughter to come pick you up and i looked at her and i said you want me to like walk down this long hallway and she says yeah and and while we're talking i happened to look over and i see a lady pushing another lady in a wheelchair and i saw an empty wheelchair just on the other side of the wall on the hallway And I looked at her and I said, can I use that wheelchair? And she said, do you have someone to push you? I said, no. And she goes, just walk down this hallway and you'll get to the escalator and it'll take you down to your daughter. So my husband tells me at this point of the story, I should explain to you why in the world I didn't insist on more help. I'm not the most assertive person in the world, and I honestly didn't think of it. If this lady told me to walk down that hallway, then obviously that was what I needed to do. And so I did. I'm forging ahead. I'm walking as close to the wall as I can. You know how you lean on something and it kind of helps you up? In that hallway, it is looking longer and longer no matter how much further I get, and I'm hurting and I'm tired and I'm shaken up and... I just uh, wasn't sure I was going to make it. But I made it. I get to the escalator, and as I'm hobbling down, I had time to think, and I really had to go to the bathroom. So I go to the escalator. It takes me down, wheelchair this way, bathroom this way. I said, OK, if I go there, it's just going to be that much further to come back to the bathroom. And so I turned into the bathroom. And I got into the stall, and I sat down. And there's something about being by myself in this bathroom stall. The doors are closed. Nobody's watching. I was like at the end of my emotional and physical strength, and I'm getting ready to just burst out in tears. And you know how um, airlines have sound systems? Just as I was ready to lose it, I want you to hear the song that they played right when I was getting ready to cry. (laughs) (laughs) And instead of bursting into tears, I just had to laugh at the timing of that. And I, you know, I'm like, God, you are just so funny that you would have that song play for me. And so we were both kind of laughing, and, and that kind of broke the – I mean, I was feeling better by that time, plus I'd gone to the bathroom. So I, I, um, I go out, and I was going to wait for my daughter. The wheelchair people were really nice. They gave me a wheelchair. I could sit and wait. But the truth is that big girls do cry, and it's Okay when we're sad, when we're in pain, when we see others suffering. I no longer feel guilty crying at Hallmark commercials. (laughs) But when we fall, when we hurt, and we know we have to keep going, it's okay to cry. And in our tears, we're comforted. And sometimes it's God alone who soothes our souls, and he knows how to speak to us. He used that song because he knows my sense of humor. Sometimes he uses family. Sometimes he uses friends. But the thing that means a lot to me is God doesn't see my tears as a sign of weakness, he sees them as an opportunity to receive his comfort. The psalmist reminds us the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It turned out that I had a um, fractured left kneecap and a fractured right radial bone. So I had, like, an injury, and I wasn't supposed to, like, walk on my leg or anything. So I get back to Spain, and I was very limited in what I could do, right? I could, like, sit, and they said, don't walk. I couldn't type. I couldn't write. I couldn't cook. I couldn't iron. It wasn't all bad. (laughs) I couldn't clean house. My husband did a lot, but I could exercise and this was my exercise. <laughs> <laughs> there you <he> go exercising. <laughs> there it is. My full it didn't take long. Exercise was time was pretty short back then. And I made progress, but it was very, very slow much slower than I anticipated. So when my arm cast came off, it came off a lot sooner than my leg thing did, I was so excited because I thought now that the cast is off I can take a shower. And this is our second bathroom. Our first, our bathroom has like the bathtub and I knew there was no way I could get in there. But look at this step, I mean it's like this. I thought okay, I can get in there and I can take a shower. I could not do that little step. And I sat down in the bathroom again and just sobbed. I sat there and I cried and I cried and I cried because this looks so easy. It's a little step. I should be able to get in there and take a shower, but I couldn't. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of physical therapy. And it took a lot of exercise to get back to where I could use my arm and leg again. And I had to work through the pain. There were no shortcuts. If I tried to do shortcuts, I wasn't going to get better. And the interesting thing is I couldn't really see where I was weak. So I was with my physical therapist, and she had me kind of lean back. And she said, okay, now just stand up. And she said, don't you notice that you're putting more pressure on your one leg than the other? And I'm like... I don't feel it. So she went and she brought me two scales, and I stood on the scales, and she said, you watch the numbers and stand up so that you can recapture normal balance. I just thought that was brilliant. She was really nice. But I couldn't believe how I got off kilter because I wasn't used to using that one leg. I had to be persistent, and I had to work hard and step by step I got better. Some days I overdid it and I ended up crying again. Other days I got it just right and I would celebrate. And one of my favorite things to do was after I got off the bus and was walking with my cane home, I would stop off at a coffee shop and I would get myself a cup of coffee and say, good job. (laughs) There was a lot of fortitude. And when I looked up the word patient, I found that it meant to stay under, to remain undergo, bear, have fortitude to persevere. In the physical challenge of things, it's a lot like life and a lot like, a lot like ministry. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's challenges, there's failures, there's successes. Affliction is pressure. It refers to pers- persecution, distress, tribulation. And in trying to figure out what being patient in tribulation looks like, I found this on Barnes' notes on the Bible Hub website. In affliction, patiently enduring all that may be appointed, Christians may be enabled to do this by the sustaining influence of their hope of future glory, of being admitted to that world where there shall be no more death and where all tears shall be wiped away from their eyes. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that be, will be revealed in us. This is so true, but in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of that affliction, it's easy to forget that what's coming is going to be so much better. And you know, when Paul writes these things, he doesn't do so glibly because he suffered himself through many obstacles and he faced a lot of opposition, and he also wrote to others who were being afflicted. So I think that we should acknowledge that life in general is challenging, and I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. It's normal to face affliction. And Paul talks about how our struggles as believers in Jesus, it's not against flesh and blood. He talks about this common struggle that we all have Paul invited the Romans to join him in his struggle by praying for him. As believers, we struggle against sin. We labor and strive for godliness in our spiritual lives. And looking through Paul's letter in ministry, when he talks about what ministry is like, I was kind of surprised how many times he used the words toil, labor, work, and struggle I was going through his epistles and found at least 14 different times he used words like that. So I don't know why it was such a surprise to me that when I arrived overseas that it was challenging. Quite a few of Paul's comments in in Romans 16 where he's talking about his co-workers. Romans 16 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible because Paul just lists all these different co-workers that he has. And he talks about Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and all he says is they were working hard for the gospel, working hard. Timothy was charged with enduring hardship, and he was told to look at the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, as he determined that work ethic in life and ministry. So we really shouldn't be surprised by challenges and hard work. But I have to admit that I was really surprised by how many challenges I faced overseas and how hard it was to walk by faith when things were going bad. Um, But part of our calling as believers is to follow where God leads us. Jesus did not sugarcoat the truth, he braced us for challenges. He told us that there will be trouble. But that also in him we could have peace. Peace, whatever we face, his peace that's not of this world, his peace is not dependent on external circumstances, but on his eternal presence, no matter what is happening in our lives. It's been said that peace is the absence of storms, but it's not that, it's God's presence in the midst of those storms. And sometimes those storms come from opposition to ministry. Other times it happens when fellowship with other believers is broken. Sometimes our own choices lead us into storms, and sometimes storms just happen. It doesn't matter if we're married or single, young or old. Each of us will face challenges, and we each find that God is always sufficient, and he gives us peace in the midst of those storms. So both Jesus and Paul prepared us by telling us that there would be hard days and hard work ahead. So I just want to take a minute and look at what some of the challenges are that we face as cross-cultural workers. Um, Years ago, our team was going to have a retreat at this place by the sea, and our leaders went there to check it out for us. So they went and they visited the town and they saw everything and what we would need to bring and what we would need to do. And the beach was really nice, but the sea was teeming with jellyfish. And so when they came back and told the team what to expect, they said, this is what we're going to do and this is where we're going to be. There are a lot of jellyfish in the sea. And they mentioned that more than once. (laughs) Yeah, when we get there, the sea is really pretty, but there's a lot of jellyfish in the sea. And so after the retreat, they did this evaluation on what was good, what was bad. And do you know not one person complained about the jellyfish? Were there jellyfish? Yeah. Did we like the jellyfish? No. Did people get stung? Yeah. So why didn't we complain? It's because we were braced. We knew that there were going to be jellyfish, and so we went prepared for the jellyfish. So I think as workers, we need to be braced and prepared and just acknowledge what our challenges are. So the first one is loneliness, which I've mentioned before. But in every move we've made, we've made six international moves. You would think by the sixth one I would expect this, but every time it catches me off guard and I have this deep sense of loneliness Several months before we moved to Spain, I was thinking about friends, and I thought, Lord, and I wrote this in my journal, I would really like a North African friend, and I would like a Spanish friend, and I prayed about that for months before we got there. I prayed for that months after we got there, and there were no friends on the horizon, not North Africans, not Spanish, not, I mean, from nowhere. I couldn't find the friends and so I think I was at my low point. So in my prayer journal, I had that prayer request there, a North African friend, a Spanish friend. I put a big X there, and I just wrote friend. And as I did that, I told God, I said, you know, God, the only requirement is that she's breathing. <laughs> and then, just to kind of show how desperate I was, I said, I don't even have to like her. <laughs> And in time, God brought friends, but it took time. And that loneliness, in a way, it's a good place to be because I depended more on Jesus. But it was really nice when I had some flesh and blood people. And I ended up—I told the first lady I met with for coffee. I was trying not to overwhelm her, <laughs> like I didn't want to gush, you know. But I eventually calmed down and I told her that. And she goes, "Well, do you like me?" And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> The other one of the challenges that we have is saying goodbye a lot. So three years ago, I was with my daughter after the birth of her third child, and I had such fun. It is amazing to me how much more fun laundry and dishes are when you do it for other people. I changed diapers. I played hide-and-seek. I did little color things, played Legos. It was just... I had time to just sit in the evenings and talk with my daughter and my son-in-law. It was just an amazing couple of weeks. And then it came time to say goodbye. And I was really brave as I said goodbye. I hugged my daughter. I kissed the littles. And my son-in-law took me to the airport. And I was just very brave and stoic. And um, I hugged him goodbye when he dropped me off. I'm in the immigration line. And I'm chatting with people. And I get through the immigration line. I'm on the, on the airplane. And you know, there's, you know how you get tears in your eyes, but they don't fall? I was just holding them in, holding them in. And nobody that saw me would know that I was just one big teardrop waiting to escape. And I had to stay in a hotel for some reason. It must have been an overnight flight or something like that. But I get into my hotel room, and I cannot hold it in anymore. And tears just flowed. And it's not, I don't know how people in the movies cry pretty, but this was that ugly, sobbing, splotchy, my hair frizzes when I cry like this, my nose turns red. I just could not control it, and I just cried and I cried and I cried. And it was just painful. It physically hurt to have to say goodbye. But goodbyes are a part of this life that God has called us to. And I have lost count of how many hellos and goodbyes we've said through the years. Family members, team members, friends. Sometimes we meet up for little reunions, but there's always that goodbye again. We also face spiritual warfare. And sometimes trying to discern what is and what isn't spiritual warfare In the end, whether it is or not, it's hard. Knowing that we're serving God in areas of the world where Jesus is not known, we know that the enemy doesn't want people to know about Jesus, and so we face his attacks. In one of the countries where we lived, a family moved into a new apartment, and their kids kept having nightmares every night. And so a group went over and just prayed through the house, and then their kids slept well. We had small groups of believers where there were informants who betrayed people in our small groups. And it was just really, really painful. It could be that in the midst of our busyness in ministry that we let our time with God lapse. We let it slip because there's so much to do. When Robin and I were working on the book, Expectations and Burnout, we discovered that for women who were consistent in their time with God, like 1 in 10 experienced burnout. Without that time with God, that increased to 30%. This time that we have with God, it protects us, it builds us up, it gives us strength, it keeps us anchored in his word and gives us that eternal perspective that we need. We must keep Our time with God is a priority. Because if the enemy can successfully help us to keep our eyes off of Jesus and we're looking at ministry and everything we have to do, and you know how many needs there are. There are more needs than we can possibly meet. If we're always doing that, we're serving out of weakness and not out of strength. Hope, light, love, laughter, they all disappear when we serve in our flesh we give satan room to water roots of bitterness and it hurts our relationships and we end up rather than modeling unity in the body of Christ we model brokenness which leads to loving others loving others on our team can be challenging there can be disagreements in vision plans finances We have different values, different personalities, different energy levels. And we make assumptions. I heard someone call it recently um, (laughs) a (laughs) sumicide. We assume what other people's motives are. And when we see differences, we jump to the conclusions that it's sin and not just a difference. We give ourselves grace and treat others more harshly. John Ortberg, in one of his books, he talks about fundamental attribution error. Let me tell you what that is. He says, when I see bad behavior in you, I attribute it to your flawed character. When it happens in me, I attribute it to extraordinarily trying circumstances. Right? It's giving ourselves grace, judging others harshly. One of the most striking questions that I was challenged to ask myself this year was, "What is it like having me for a teammate?" And I started thinking. I like to talk. I like to tell stories. I don't hear as well as I used to, so for my poor younger teammates, I'm like, "What?" I'm trying to get them to repeat things. Um, sometimes I repeat myself. I tell stories that I've already told. Um, I can be pretty self-focused, and I started thinking about what my teammates put up with, and I just ended up with a time of gratitude for my gracious teammates. To ask ourselves that question, what's it like having me for a teammate, helps us appreciate our team and just gives us a better perspective. And then there's learning language and culture. So anybody who does this, realizes that we make a lot of mistakes. So I want to share my most, I don't know if it's my most embarrassing moment, but it's way at the top. So we were in the Middle East, and it was really inexpensive to get house help. And so Hannah would come over every Monday and every Wednesday, and she would clean and do the dishes, and then I could do other things that I wanted to do ministry-wise, right? So when she would come, the kids were off to school, and her first thought was to do dishes, In the kitchen, but my first thought was, oh, I'm gonna take a shower. So while I'm in the shower and she does the dishes, all the hot water goes to the kitchen and I'm left with a cold shower. So I got into this habit of whenever Hannah came, I would say, Hannah, I'm so glad you're here. I would like to take a shower. Would you mind, somebody knows, would you mind doing um, something else and do the dishes later? And she smiled at me, and she said, yeah, no problem. And so she did the other thing, and that worked so well that every time she came, because I didn't want to have a cold shower, Hannah, I'm going to take a shower now. Would you mind cleaning the living room? She would smile at me, and I thought, she is so pleasant, you know, just very agreeable and kind and smiling. And a little while later, I was at this team meeting, and there was a lady there with a lot more experience in the Middle East. And we were talking about different cultural things and things like that. And I found out that in that culture, whenever a woman takes a shower, people assume she'd been intimate with her husband the night before.
1: <laughs>
0: so Hannah wasn't just a nice lady who smiled, she's like, oh, she's been busy every Tuesday and Saturday (laughs) night with her husband. So I think that this kind of cultural insight should go on page one of orientation (laughs) manuals. That would have been helpful to know. So all of these things, living across cultures, things that happen, it's nothing really new. People throughout scripture lived cross-culturally, and Moses lived in a cross-cultural setting. Now, it, I think it would have been easy for Moses to enjoy all that Egypt had to offer, to live in the present, avoid hostilities, but Moses, he had his eyes on eternity, and he walked by faith. In Hebrews 11:24 24 to 27, the author writes, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So Moses made his choices. He endured affliction, not by looking at the present, but by looking ahead. And there were a lot of treasures in Egypt. I'm not a huge museum person, but I could spend hours at the museum in Cairo. Just so many beautiful gold things, and that could have been his as part of his inheritance in Pharaoh's family. But he was looking ahead. He had his eyes on eternity, and he endured in affliction by focusing on what was coming, not what was. And we read names throughout Hebrews chapter 11 of people who had eyes of faith. And what is encouraging to me is that they all failed at some point in their lives. None of them were perfect. None of them obeyed God wholeheartedly but they weren't commended for their performance. They weren't commended for their perfection. They were commended for their faith. We can be patient in affliction by, first of all, recognizing that affliction is normal. There are no shortcuts. Challenges are unavoidable. And if we seek to avoid them, we may be led astray from doing God's will And we will not receive the full benefits of what God has for us by going through the affliction. Secondly, we can be patient in affliction by gaining experience in going through affliction. By faith, we stay the course and the strength that God provides. And as we go through trials, God brings about maturity so that we can continue to handle whatever comes our way. Each time we're patient in affliction, each time we endure an affliction, we have more strength, we have more maturity to handle what's coming next. James talks about that in chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God uses these trials. He uses going through affliction to build our faith. And when I look back over my life, my times of deepest growth, that's come through the hardest times. We increase our dependence on him and we have this growing history of experiencing his faithfulness that gives us hope in whatever current trials we're facing. So we expect affliction, we gain experience, as by faith we walk through affliction, and then finally, we can be patient in affliction because we know what's coming. We keep our eyes on eternity. James writes in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We can be patient in affliction because we are people of hope with our eyes on eternity. I want to quote one more time from Paul David Tripp in his book New Morning Mercies. But eternity also fills this moment with hope because I know that this is not all there is. I also know that the sin, trials, and sufferings of the present will not last forever For God's children, eternity promises that sin will die, suffering will end, our trials will be no more, and we will live with God in perfect peace forever and ever and ever. You just can't make proper sense of life without viewing it from the perspective of eternity. So we face affliction, but it does not defeat us. Paul wrote, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So in the here and now we might be struggling, and I'd like for us just to take a minute... And I want you to just sit in this quiet and think about what affliction you're feeling today. What burden do you have? Is there something you're fearful about? Something you have no control over? Is there an unknown in your life? Are you weary in your body and in your soul? Are you feeling despair? As you open your eyes and you look around the room, you are not alone. We all have affliction. We all have challenges. What I would like for us to do is to stand at your tables and join hands, and I'd like to read over us First Peter chapter one, verses three through nine. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen.
1: So just a couple announcements. So at lunch today, we're going to, this is my new favorite thing. Um, At lunch today, we're going to meet by regional groups again, so I know you got to do that last night, but just so you can finish those conversations and spend a little more time together. Um, We have moved the thank-you sheets um, to a table um, right in the back, kind of by the departure sign-up, so um, be sure to write a note on there if you want to. Um, And you just have to sign one, so we'll combine everything into one document, so don't feel like you have to sign every single one. Um, Photos from the retreat will be available from Karen in a couple weeks so that you can look back and um, remember this time and um, use any of those that you want um, and if you need to leave before noon tomorrow please let your small groups know just so that they're aware um, and then if you're going to leave around lunchtime but can't stay for lunch let me know because I can get you a um, to-go box from um, the kitchen so if you want to take that with you um, and then we should have all taken a COVID test this morning so thank you all for doing that we really appreciate it um, but if you haven't yet, there's more in the back, and you could do that during the coffee break time. And then just right now, um, we're about to go take our group photo. So we're actually going to go out these back, this glass door right here, um, and take it there. And there's um, a door open in the back, too. So I know it's hard, but when you get out there, try to be quiet so that Karen can give us our instructions because there's kind of a small area that we all fit into. So she's going to tell us where to go. Um, so that she can see all our faces. So, um, And then we'll have coffee break right after that. So, Yeah, good point. I was going to mention that. So you can remove your mask for the photos, please. So. After coffee break or um, 11. And then we'll come back in this room at 11 or wherever your small group is meeting to start that small group time. So.